This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. The last time U.S.-Russia relations were this bad, Kennedy was president and Khrushchev had nuclear missiles pointed at us from Cuba. Today, our embassy in Moscow only has a skeleton staff that faces restrictions from a Russian government working to undermine U.S. interests all over the world. In the wake of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, democratic nations came together to isolate his regime with coordinated condemnation and a punishing set of sanctions. They have reduced revenues from trade and petroleum products, pushed more than 1,000 companies to pull out of the Russia, and isolated the country's financial industry. And yet, the Russian economy only shrank by 2% in 2022, and Russia has dramatically increased trade with other autocratic nations, including China and Iran, not to mention India. So we need to continue our coordinated global efforts to target Putin's war machine, because beyond Ukraine and with support of the Wagner Group, Putin continues to be a destructive autocratic force on the world stage. Inside Russia, Kremlin cronies kidnap Americans, from basketball stars to Wall Street Journal reporters, to use as bargaining chips in their geopolitical gains. They've imprisoned Russian dissidents that threaten Putin's power, like Vladimir Karamusa or Alexei Navalny. And they've shut down independent media to control the behavior and minds of Russian citizens. But beyond Russia's borders, far away from the headlines of Western nations, there is a very different picture. Sergei Lavrov is globetrotting around the world to shore up support. A so-called limitless partnership with China, which apparently includes working to shape international institutions in their own image, undermining the values of sovereignty, rule of law, and respect for human rights. The Russian embassy here in D.C. is throwing cocktail parties attended by diplomats from all over the global south who then abstain or even vote against resolutions to support Ukraine. And the, at the United Nations, Russia uses its seat on the Security Council to make a mockery of any attempt to hold Putin and his regime accountable for the atrocities their forces are committing. So while we can laud the fact that more than 140 UN members condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine versus 35 who abstained, as the Financial Times recently pointed out, those 35 countries represent more than half of the world's population. Underlying these Russian efforts is a sophisticated mis- and disinformation campaign that, quite frankly, I don't believe we are effectively dealing with. Through Wagner mercenaries exploiting instability in across the Sahel in Africa, through Russian cyber attacks that destroy infrastructure, through engineering a food crisis that now stretches halfway around the world, the Russian disinformation apparatus continues to find fertile ground for blatant lies that whitewash its own operations and undermine trust in the countries actually working to provide humanitarian assistance, promote peace and security. To say nothing of its targeted campaign against the United States and our electoral systems, as well as those of our democratic allies who embrace the same fundamental human rights and freedoms that underpin our own system. So let me thank uh, our witnesses for appearing today. I hope you'll speak to these challenges and how the United States and our partners can overcome them. How can we better leverage sanctions and punitive tools to further cripple Russia's leadership? How can we better leverage international institutions to confront Russian influence? What tools can we utilize to hold Russian actors accountable for their crimes against humanity in Ukraine and human rights abuses at home? I also hope our witnesses will speak to how we can combat Putin's weaponization of energy from Georgia to Syria to Moldova. 
I'm pleased that Senator Risch is working with me on a bill to support energy security in Eastern Europe and beyond, which will be critical to cutting off Putin's assets. I'm also working on efforts to support Russian dissidents who have fled and welcome your thoughts on how we can best support those Russians who want to see a brighter future for their country. This question of the future of U.S.-Russia relations is obviously huge. I haven't even touched on non-proliferation or Arctic security or climate change. Uh, but at this point, I'll turn it over to Ranking Member Risch, and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Senator Risch. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to our witnesses uh, for appearing here this morning. <clears throat> There's been a lot of discussion in Washington about Russia and Ukraine, but very little about what U.S. policy towards Russia should be uh, and now and in the future. Uh, I'm glad we get to have this conversation. Russia under Putin is an autocratic and imperialistic regime and poses an acute threat to the freedom and stability that the United States and our allies have fought to promote and defend. This is true in Ukraine, more broadly in Europe, and throughout Africa, Latin America, and the Arctic, and in the emerging China-Russia cooperation. <clears throat> Despite these increasing challenges, it is clear that the United States lacks a coherent policy to confront Russia. It appears the White House never really thinks about Russia until Moscow makes a move and has never acted proactively to force the Kremlin to respond to our initiatives. Before Russia's unprovoked invasion last year reminded us that weakness invites aggression, this administration's approach resembled the failed Obama reset. We all remember the reset. It didn't work. As to this administration, it started with the unilateral extension of the New START Treaty on Inauguration Day. It continued to the refusal to impose Nord Stream 2 sanctions. It continued on to the Biden-Putin uh, summit in Geneva, which produced no deliverables. And then on to the suspension of military assistance to Ukraine in May and November of 21 because of concerns it would cause escalation. The administration has offered olive branch after olive branch, but as predicted, Putin used every dialogue and concession to lend himself legitimacy and increase Russia's geopolitical status at our expense. We need to accept that Russia sees this kind of diplomacy as weakness and that it only seriously responds when we project strength. This discredited approach has allowed for war in Europe, renewed Russian presence in the Middle East, a militarized Arctic, and a growing Russian proxy footprint across Africa and Latin America. We need to be honest and acknowledge that under Putin, Russia is an adversary, not a willing partner. Our policies must confront Russia as it is now, not as it was 30 years ago. We must view Russia not only as a serious adversary in its own right, but also recognize its role in U.S.-China competition and other challenges of today's world. Domestically, Putin has turned Russia into a feudal kingdom where the whim of an autocrat is the only law. Political repression is at an all-time high. The opposition movement has been crushed, with anyone who, who expresses dissent either jailed, ex exiled, assassinated, poisoned. Attacks on press freedom and state control of the media have reduced Russia to a propaganda state. Civil society has been muzzled, and anyone who could flee has already done so. On sanctions, the United States has made a start, but there is so much more to do, particularly in targeting critical sectors like energy and, very importantly, cracking down on third nation sanctions evasion. 
Likewise, we need a U.S. military strategy that accurately accounts for recent changes in Russia's diminishing conventional capabilities. At the same time, we should expect more nuclear threats. That has become consistent and indeed uh, during the Ukraine conflict commonplace because of its frequency to the point that it is largely ignored. This is dangerous, but not unexpected given Russia's ham-handed statecraft. Russian thinking uh, is clear in this regard. Putin knows he can threaten to use nuclear weapons without any concrete response from the West. Uh, instead, he seriously believes his threats will deter us from doing what we should to protect our interests. On all fronts, the United States needs to have a clearly defined policy for what we expect from Russia and what we are willing to do to pursue and protect our interests. We must also form this policy in the context of a more globally assertive China and its increasingly close strategic partnership with Russia. This administration consistently and all too often worries about what Putin will do. We need a policy where Putin wakes up every morning worried about what we will do. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, in, a time, uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to give condensed biographies for our distinguished witnesses. Uh, Ambassador John J. Sullivan is no stranger to the <coughs> committee, and I'm sure he's happy there is no confirmation vote after this hearing. Currently a distinguished fellow at the School of Foreign Service of Georgetown University, his career spans four decades in the public sector for both Democratic and Republican administrations across the Departments of State, Justice, Defense, and Commerce, as well as in private law practice. Ambassador Sullivan served five presidents in prominent diplomatic and legal positions, including as U.S. Ambassador to the Russian Federation under Presidents Biden and Trump. Before his post in Moscow, he served for almost three years as the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State. Dr. Andrea Kendall Taylor is a senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Prior to joining CNAS, Dr. Kendall Taylor served for eight years as a senior intelligence officer including as Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. She is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Her work has been published in numerous political science and policy journals. And since the committee also champions the State Department's Education and Cultural Exchange Bureau, I'll note that she was a Fulbright Scholar in Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan, where she conducted dissertation research on oil and autocracy. We welcome you both to the committee. We thank you for the insights you'll provide us. Ambassador, we're going to start off with you. I'd ask you both to limit your presentations here to about five minutes. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. Ambassador Sullivan, the floor is yours. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of, of the committee. It's, it's good to be back, as the Chairman said. It's also good to be back without seeking a confirmation vote uh, from, from this committee. Uh, but I'm honored to be here uh, today to discuss U.S. policy toward Russia. I hope to bring, to bring to the committee my experiences for the three years I was in Moscow, dealing with the Russians, negotiating with the Russians. When I arrived at my post in Moscow, I was resolved to do everything I could to stop the downward spiral in relations between our countries. U.S. policy toward Russia at the time was, on the one hand, to confront and push back hard on the Kremlin in the many areas where we were opposed, but on the other hand, to seek progress in those limited areas where the interests of our countries appeared more aligned, arms control, some regional conflicts, North Korea. At a minimum, I hoped that we could stabilize our respective diplomatic platforms. 
That policy approach failed. During my first two years as ambassador, there was no lasting progress on any issue on which we engaged. Nevertheless, persistent, my priorities remained, even after the change in the White House in January 2021, to work to stabilize the U.S.-Russia relationship while defending U.S. interests and advocating for U.S. citizens wrongfully detained in Russia and the many U.S. businesses uh, that operate there. This was reaffirmed, uh, my approach was reaffirmed in June 2021 when I accompanied President Joe Biden to meet Putin in Geneva. President Biden made clear we would continue to confront and oppose the Russians in the many areas where U.S. interests were threatened or undermined by them, but we would engage with them on, among other things, strategic stability, cybersecurity, and wrongfully detained Americans. Our engagement following the summit had barely begun when there was a seismic policy shift after U.S. intelligence agencies collected considerable evidence of Russia's plans for Ukraine. Beginning in November 2021, U.S. policy focused intensively on dissuading and deterring Russia from a further invasion of Ukraine. Despite these intensive diplomatic efforts, that policy failed when Russia launched on February 24, 2022, its so-called special military operation, a, a euphemism that would make George Orwell blush. It had been apparent well before then that the Russians were not negotiating in good faith and were going through a charade of diplomacy for Putin to lay the groundwork for a further invasion of Ukraine. In the 15 months since Russia's aggressive and brutal war began, U.S. policymaking has rightly focused on supporting Ukraine and sanctioning and isolating Russia. That must be the immediate and imperative policy focus. No country, let alone a permanent member of the U.N. Security Council, can be allowed to succeed in waging an aggressive war of conquest replete with grotesque war crimes to redraw international borders. And make no mistake, Putin does not want to negotiate an end to his aggressive war short of victory on his terms. He believes that Ukraine is Russia's, and I quote, historical lands, unquote. He said that in a recent speech in which he also assured his fellow Russians that, quote, step by step, carefully and consistently, we will deal with the tasks we have at hand, which are to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. That's President Putin just weeks ago. But as, uh, as Senator Risch mentioned, I think it's appropriate for us to consider the broader context of US policy toward Russia now, even as the war in Ukraine and Putin's failed special military operation continues. If I may, I thought I'd just offer a few uh, thoughts on context for policymaking, and then would be happy to delve into many of the specific issues that the chairman mentioned. First, most important, Russia, is, Russia under Putin is an implacable adversary of the United States. Putin believes that Russia is at war with us in a clash of, quote, civilizations, unquote. They said this in their recent restatement of their foreign policy, their so-called concept of the foreign policy of the Russian Federation. Putin and many other Russian nationalists are committed to this concept. For any US policy on Russia to succeed, we need to understand our adversary. Second, we must work to put in place security architecture through NATO 
and with intensive bilateral and multilateral diplomacy that protects not just Ukraine, but Europe and the rest of the world from Russian aggression. Third, there could be no trust of any kind in the Russian government. After repeated statements from Russian leadership in early 2022 that they would not attack Ukraine, indeed, they said they had no plans to do so, why would anyone trust that government? The Reagan-era mantra of trust but verify is quaint. It has no application now. There can be no trust, only verification and justice for Ukraine and the victims of Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Fourth, as difficult as it is to pursue diplomacy in this context, we should not give up entirely on engaging with the Russian government when our interests so require. But our interests do not require pleading with the Russians for dialogue, whether it's on arms control or the war in Ukraine. That's what they want, and it will lead only to more policy failure. The best advice I received as ambassador in Moscow was to never ask the Russians for anything. We should, we should approach any proposed engagement or negotiation from a position of strength and confidence. Finally, Chairman Menendez mentioned our embassy in Moscow. To engage with Russia, we rely on a safe and functioning embassy in that capital. The price we pay to maintain that embassy is steep. The Russians, despite their professed commitment to reciprocity, have maintained an advantage. We have an embassy in Moscow and no consulates. They have an embassy in Washington and two consulates, Houston and New York. Moreover, they have more diplomats assigned to their bilateral mission to the United States than we have in Russia. We should insist on reciprocity. Thank you for allowing me to address the committee and I welcome the opportunity to discuss the foregoing issues or any other matters in which members are interested. Thank you, Dr. Kendall Taylor. <coughs> Uh, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the Foreign Relations Committee, thank you for inviting me to speak today about U.S. policy towards Russia, a topic that is both critical and fraught. It is critical because we are clearly locked in a period of intense and probably prolonged confrontation with Russia with the war for Ukraine at its center. Although the United States is not directly engaged in the war with Russia in Ukraine, as the ambassador said, we should be very clear that Russia sees itself as being at war with us. The future of U.S. policy towards Russia is also fraught because so much is changing. Russia itself is changing as a result of its war in Ukraine in still unknowable ways. Nothing will improve so long as Putin is in power, but there is uncertainty about the political changes that the war might trigger inside Russia and what Putin's eventual departure will mean for future relations. Russia's war in Ukraine requires us to re-examine long-held assumptions about Russia, and it is those updated assessments that should guide Washington's approach. I will make four brief points, three that should shape our expectations of relations with Russia and a final point on what I see as the most important recommendation for putting U.S.-Russia relations on more solid footing. First, the nature of U.S.-Russia relations will remain antagonistic so long as the war continues and the war is likely to be protracted. Putin believes that time is on his side and that the West will tire in its support for Ukraine. But fighting on is also in Putin's personal interest. Wartime autocrats rarely lose power. 
Being at war shuts down avenues for the country's citizens, military, and security forces to challenge their leadership. In my work, I have found that since the end of World War II, only 7% of personalist authoritarians, as Putin is, have been unseated, while an interstate conflict that began under their watch was ongoing. The same does not hold true for dictators who lose wars. They become more vulnerable to ouster. Even if Ukraine is wildly successful in its counteroffensive, Putin has every incentive to fight through the hardship, meaning that this war will go on for a long time, significantly constraining the scope of U.S.-Russia relations. Second, not only is Putin poised to maintain power, but the confrontational nature of U.S.-Russia relations will very likely persist past him. The historical track record of these longtime personalist autocrats suggests that once these leaders make it to 20 years in, in power, and Putin has been there for 23, they tend to make it to about 36 years. What's more, Putin is orchestrating changes inside Russia that make relations more problematic. He's moving Russia in a more totalitarian direction, and I don't use that word lightly, as he attempts to mobilize Russian society in support of his war, not just on Ukraine, but also on the West. The contours of his policies are likely to endure beyond him. The historical record shows that authoritarianism persists past the departure of longtime autocratic leaders like Putin 92% of the time. Moreover, my research shows that the same group of regime insiders often remains intact after longtime leaders depart. Such continuity in the Russian regime would bring continuity in Russia's external relations. Putin has saddled his successor with a long list of vexing problems, including how to end the war and settle the status of Crimea, and whether to pay Ukraine wartime reparations and accept accountability for war crimes. These thorny issues will long complicate Russia's relations with the United States and Europe. Third, along with the enduring intent to challenge the United States, Russia will attain significant capacity to do so, although we need to be attuned to how the nature of the threat is evolving. Russia will emerge from its war militarily, economically, and geopolitically weaker, and there will therefore be a strong, tempt strong temptation to downgrade Russia as a threat. But that would be a mistake. P Russian power and influence may be diminished, but Russia will adapt. In particular, the more vulnerable that Putin feels about the degradation of his conventional forces, the more he will rely on unconventional methods to accomplish his objectives, including relying more heavily on his nuclear weapons and other hybrid tactics. Finally, I have included several recommendations in my written statement, but I want to highlight one, and that is the best path to a better relationship with Russia runs through Ukraine. The United States has very limited ability to, to shape directly uh, the trajectory of U.S.-Russia relations. And so the single most important way to shape that trajectory is by enabling Ukraine to defeat Russia. A Russia that makes gains in Ukraine is likely to be emboldened. A military defeat of Russia, in contrast, could be the type of seismic event that is required to catalyze bottom-up pressure that will be needed to set Russia down a different path. A Ukrainian victory raises the prospect, even if just slightly, that Putin could be forced out of office, creating an opening for political change. That future comes with risks, but also opportunities. In sum, we are likely to remain in a long-term confrontation with Russia, and the United States will need an effective and sustainable policy to meet the challenge starting in Ukraine. Thank you.
Well, thank you both for your testimony. We'll start a series of five-minute rounds of questioning. Um, since the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Biden administration has corralled the EU, the UK, Japan, and other allies into a sanction regime that is really unprecedented in scope. And while I give them a lot of credit, uh, we've been leveraging sanctions on Russia for years, but it's clear that existing sanctions and export controls are not crushing the Russian economy in a way that will force it to stop waging war in Ukraine. Uh, for both of you, aside from a cracking down on sanctions evasion by China, Turkey, Kazakhstan, and other countries, what other pressure can or should we bring against Russia to reinforce and expand upon the impact of existing sanctions? Okay. Well, I mean, as you said, I mean, this is an unprecedented sanctions regime that we've put in place. And I think the theory behind the case is that the longer that the sanctions remain in place, the more effective they will become. And I do think that we've begun to see evidence that that is the case. Certainly in specific industries, the airline industry, the car industry, the impact of sanctions are slowly being felt. Uh, the sanctions on uh, export, on oh, sorry, uh, microchips and other things are slowing down Russia's defense industrial production. So over time, the sanctions hopefully will have greater effect. But there, as you indicate, there's multiple uh, and additional steps that the United States could take to strengthen that regime. I think first and foremost is in the energy realm. Um, and I think that Congress could advocate for lowering the price cap down from its current price of $60 per barrel. So that would be one area where Congress, I think, could advocate more vocally so that Russia continues to be squeezed, particularly in the energy domain, which continues to be a key lifeline for its ability to sustain its war abroad. So advocating to bring that price cap down is one. I think there's also additional sectors that still have yet to be sanctioned. Um, for example, uh, uh, companies like Ross Adam, um, including a ban on Russian uranium, there's still other key sectors of the Russian economy that haven't been uh, targeted by sanctions and where additional sanctions could have a further impact on Russia's economic viability. And then I think the most important thing, which you already referenced, is really about sanctions enforcement. This continues to be a major problem. There is already evidence that Russia is working very hard to evade the sanctions that are in place. And so for Congress to be able to build the enforcement capacity, not just in the United States, but also critically in the European Union. I think a lot of our allies don't have the same enforcement capacity as we have in the United States. And so having US Congress being, be able to fund those efforts to enhance the capacity of our allies and partners will help us tighten the screws. And there's other things that the US, not necessarily for Congress, could do, but you know, creating a unified database with all sanctions entities and um, institutions. So I think, again, going after energy, there's more that we can do there. Tar targeting additional sectors that have not yet been impacted and really thinking very hard about the enforcement piece, I think, is the way forward. Thank you. Ambassador Solomon? Yeah, I think uh, Dr. Kendall Taylor has really hit the, the key points. I would emphasize energy as well. But one thing to keep in mind, and this I, I base this statement on uh, a comment that Putin himself made. He was asked by uh, a Russian nationalist, uh, why didn't we do the special military operation earlier? Why did you wait so long? We knew this Nazi regime existed in Kiev. Why did we wait? And Putin said we weren't ready. It wasn't that we weren't ready militarily. It was we weren't ready to protect our economy. He's been working on this for a long time. 
He spent more time worrying about how he was going to protect his economy than he did, frankly, planning the military aspects of his special military operation, which have failed miserably. But I thought that was a telling answer by him. So they've been working on this for a long time. We had to, uh, we basically started from a standing start. We had sectoral sanctions in place after Crimea, after the Donbass, sure, but nothing like we're doing now. Putin didn't expect this, but he was planning for it, and he's had time to work with his friends, his partners, his dear friend in Beijing, uh, the new government in Brazil, the South Africans, the BRICS in particular. China, India, Brazil have really been a lifeline for him. Which I'm, I'm glad you said that, because while we've been focused on Ukraine, the truth is that the United States and Russia are actively competing for alliances, economic and security partners all over the world. Uh, Russia has been cultivating relationships with huge countries across Africa, like notably South Africa and others in the Sahel, as well as with dictators in our own hemisphere. What tools, engagement, and outreach should we be thinking about to best posture the United States in this existential competition with Russia for partnerships across the globe? Well, uh, Senator Kane and I, some months ago, had a conversation uh, somewhat related to this, uh, and it, I, I think I'd summarize it as three Ds. Diplomacy, diplomacy, diplomacy. We need to be engaged and not badgering countries to say, you need to support us on Ukraine. We need to do a better job. I had a conversation with Sir John Scarlett, the former head of, of MI6. We do need to do a better job of explaining the brutality of Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, and this is a war waged, as I said in my opening statement, by a permanent member of the Security Council. For a country like Brazil, a country like India, Russia's presence in the Security Council renders that uh, a null body for, for purposes of dealing with a problem like this. But it's diplomacy. The fact that the Security Council is now hamstrung means that it's more important for my former colleagues at the department and across the U.S. government and our embassies to be reaching out and establishing better relationships in, uh, in Pretoria and Delhi, et cetera. And I think the Biden administration is working on this. I agree with the diplomacy piece is key. And I think one, the only thing I would add to that is I think a lot of the countries in the you know, so-called global south don't want to be forced to pick sides. I think there's many countries who don't buy into this kind of democracy versus authoritarianism. They don't want to be dragged into the US confrontation with China. And so working on discrete issues where the interests align is key to, I think, that effective diplomacy. The paying attention piece is really critical. I mean, we, as, as uh, Senator Risch was saying, um, there are opportunities to exploit here um, in terms of going on the offensive and taking the fight to Russia. In, in regions like Central Asia, for example, many of these countries, particularly in Russia's kind of periphery, um, are extremely skeptical and wary of relations with Russia for the first time in a very long time. And so if we pay attention, the US State Department, I believe, sent a delegation, at, you know, a critically timed delegation, to also work with those countries to help the enforcement of sanctions. So diplomacy and paying attention and picking up on the uh, vacuum that Moscow is leaving behind in many places is key. Arms sales is another key uh, opportunity with the global south, the Middle East. 
uh, Russia will have fewer arms to sell uh, going forward as they have to choose to send uh, arms into Ukraine or to sell them um, for export. Those relationships that Russia has with India, many countries in the Middle East, are relationships that Russia uses to tether those countries to Moscow. This is an opportune time for the United States to consider whether we can step in or have allies step in to break those relationships. And then, as you mentioned, I think in, in the opening statements, the information domain is also critical. And so continued funding for the US Agency of Global Media and other efforts that help the United States to continue to invade engage in these media environments um, are all critical, I think, for competing in, in, in the, with those countries. Thank you. You've both, you've both hit on a key that we are trying to work through in the China bill, which is how do we beef up our diplomatic abilities across the globe? China has more embassies, more personnel across the globe than we do. Senator Rich. Well, thank you. Let me pick up uh, from uh, where the chairman left off here, and that is the uh, diplomatic aspect of this. <clears throat> um, I think probably anybody that uh, operates in this lane on diplomacy is, is, can't be more disgusted with the UN than it is right now. I mean, it, what, what good is this institution where you have a permanent member of the UN Security Council violating the basic precept and the reason that the UN exists, and that was for security for nations, for their sovereignty, and for their borders. Uh, I mean, it's just, uh, I, I went round and round uh, uh, with the Secretary General on this. Uh, uh, what We send billions there, and what do we get? Speeches, uh, nothing more. And they can't even, not only can't they stop this, which they should, they can't even pass a resolution condemning it because of the way the, the UN is set up. So I, I'm disgusted there, but but that uh, that just means that we've got to pay more attention uh, on a bilateral basis uh, with our uh, uh, with, with our diplomacy. That brings me to an interesting point uh, that uh, you made, Ms. Taylor, and that is, I've been visited, and I suspect mo uh, other members of the Senate have been visited by countries that uh, are former uh, countries uh, in the uh, orbit and the stands, obviously, is primarily what I'm talking about. And, and I, was, I was amazed at their lack of support for what Russia is doing. I mean, they came to tell me, hey, we got nothing to do with this. Now, I hadn't, I hadn't seen them. I hadn't talked to them in years. But they voluntarily showed up and said, look, we, we want you, the United States, to know we got nothing to do with this. And uh, I, I was amazed that uh, Putin called on them to step up and send people and, and supplies and weapons and everything else, and they, they haven't done it. So I think there's a real opportunity there, and I, I think uh, that, that we really ought to exploit it. And I think it underscores the uh, disgust that the world has with what, uh, with what Russia's doing there. Um, one, of, one of the other things that always strikes me is how, how uh, and I guess I shouldn't be, because it is an, an autocracy where people can't speak out, but uh, it, it always amazes me how the Russian people come to defense of this. I mean, I don't know how you can watch what's happened in Ukraine, the atrocities that have been committed there on a par with the kinds of things that happened in, uh, in World War II, and say, well, you know, this is all right because they, they wanted to join NATO or something like that. What, what, what's your view on, uh, is there any... Both of you are, are experts in the area. Are, are there? Is, is there? What's it like at home in Russia? You, you live there. 
uh, Ambassador Sullivan, you live there. What, what do you hear from the people there when they whisper in your ear? Uh, well, thank you, Senator Risch. Um, I think there are several things going on. First, the media environment in, uh, in, in Russia um, is merely state propaganda. It is what the Russian people hear 24-7. They have to really seek out other sources of information if they don't just want to hear the Kremlin's propaganda. And many of them, they've got other things to do with their lives. They're just steeped in it all day long. Second, this is a country dating back to Soviet days where people just did what they needed to do to survive. They kept their heads down, they shut up, they didn't make a scene, and that's what most Russians, I believe, many Russians are doing now. There are some who have fled, there are some who tried to protest, they have been sent to labor camps, but, the vast, but there's a large segment of the population who, as they did in Soviet days, sort of keep their head down and try not to uh, attract attention. There comes a point, however, where the effects in Russia of the special military operation will become so grave, in my opinion, whether it's because of casualties or the continuing effect on the economy, where there will, as Dr. Kendall Taylor said, there will be that bubbling up from below. But it's a country that has been dating back again to Soviet days, they've, they've dealt with this. The Russian people, as, as is the Russian Federation, part of the Soviet Union, they've dealt with these types of situations before in ways that Americans can't imagine. Even the younger generation? The younger generation is you know, born since the, uh, since the Cold War ended. Uh, many of them are nationalists. They hear the World War II propaganda that, that Putin spews, that this is what our grandparents did in defeating the Nazis. They want to rally around their country. There are a lot of young Russian nationalists who are buying into this, I'm afraid. I guess I, my time's up. I, Dr. Taylor, why don't you give us... Yeah, just, give just to echo, I mean, I agree that there, I think there is a lot, quite a lot of broad support, and that certainly Putin's public approval readings have gone up since the invasion. Obviously, it's very difficult to understand and gauge citizens' true preferences for the reasons that the ambassador was talking about. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, one thing we have to keep an eye on as I talked about Putin mobilizing Russian society. So for years, the apathy, the passivity has been Putin's playbook. But what we're seeing is since he had to mobilize Russians and draw Russians into the war, there is much more active support. No longer can people like be as passive as the ambassador is saying. That's been a real change. There's more citizens reporting on other citizens. The heartbreaking story of a father who was arrested because a little girl drew an anti war picture. I mean, there is a lot of kind of citizens reporting on other... So we're, Russia is moving from a demobilized society to a mobilized society, and I think we'll have to keep an eye on that for what, uh, th what kind of implications that produces for the future. But the one extra point I will very quickly make is there are many, 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 hundreds of thousands, something like 300,000 Russians have fled in the aftermath of the war. That provides an opportunity for the United States. And I think that's another area where the U.S. Congress can do more to enable those Russians who have left. Not all, some of them were uh, dodging, you know, having to fight in the war, but there is a hearty number of civil society actors who 
have now left Russia. And so having a U.S. Congress take actions and steps and provide resources that enable those Russians to continue their work from outside of Russia is very important. So we could fund research on understanding what that community looks like. We can increase funding to support those who are outside, creating a title program for human rights defenders and journalists. Um, so those are opportunities, again, what think, trying to find the opportunities that come out of this war and this huge uh, population of Russians that are now outside the country, I do think represents an opportunity that we could tap into. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for being here. Um, so there's a question of whether Ukraine can ultimately carry the cost of this war for as long as is necessary. And then there's this corresponding question of whether Russia can carry the cost of this war for as long as necessary. And it seems to me that we appropriately are engaged in public policy trying to impact both sides of that coin, getting Ukraine everything it needs and trying to winnow the pathways through which Russia gets what it needs. Um, but we are, you responded to a question from Senator Menendez about our sanctions regime. Um, but there is also a set of bilateral relationships the United States has with countries that are still actively engaged with Russia, helping them either to manage or evade those sanctions regimes. And so there's two things at play here. One, we can talk about expanding our sanctions, but two, we can just talk about elevating this question of Russia lifelines with our friends. I mean, this is, you know, one of, you know, a myriad of articles you can find on this question. This is from the Center for European Policy Analysis, uh, an article entitled, UAE Throws Lifeline to Beleaguered Russian Tech Sector. You could find similar stories about Turkey, India, countries in Central Asia, and it strikes me that this is a missed opportunity, maybe most particularly in the Gulf, where they're making individual decisions to support uh, Russian s sanctions evasion, but they are also helping to prop up the cost of oil in a way that allows Putin to power forward. So just a word on um, how you view our bilateral relationships with countries that are still helping Russia fund this war and why it's I hope you believe it's important to elevate this as a priority in those bilateral relationships. Uh, I put this to you, Ms. Taylor. Uh, yeah, so I think the sanctions evasion is, is a big piece, but I think the important thing to think about with all of these different countries is that they all have very disparate interests. They're continuing to support Russia, often for very different reasons. India, because they have this long uh, uh, military uh, sales relationship, some for historical reasons, some, some because they don't want to be drug into the U.S.-China confrontation. And so, as you noted, I think working it on bilateral, it, it, through bilateral channels is a critical way to go. Um, India, for example, um, this is a, an excellent opportunity to step in the United States, France, some of our allies to try to wean India away from its defense sales. It's not going to happen overnight. 
um, but it is an important opportunity that we can exploit and take advantage of. So I guess bottom line is, when we've been talking about the role of diplomacy, kind of arms sales, working it through the sanctions channels, there's all a, a number of different components and opportunities and pathways that the United States could pursue in these bilateral relationships. But I agree, one of the goals of our policy should be to grow the coalition of countries that oppose Russia. That will be needed, especially if we were are talking about this as a protracted conflict. So that should be one of the explicit priorities of US policy on Russia is to grow the, the number of countries and figuring out those issues where our interests overline their specific relationships with Russia and how we can exploit them, I think should be a central focus. Anything on this question, Mr. Sullivan? Uh, yes, I, I agree. Uh, first of all, with you, Senator, and with Dr. Kendall Taylor, it's labor intensive. We need to push the message out to all our posts worldwide. All of those countries, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on the 141 that voted for the resolution in the General Assembly. More than half of them have done nothing to implement that resolution. In fact, many of them keep trading with Russia. We've got the almost 40 that abstained. We need to be using all the tools, and they, it may vary from country to country. Egypt, for example, making sure that the Egyptians don't sell military equipment to the Russians and do sell equipment to the Ukrainians. So it's labor-intensive. It needs to be tailored to the particular countries. Um, and this comes back to Senator Menendez's original point. It is labor-intensive, which means we need resources, uh, which means we can't continue to ask the State Department to fight Russia with one hand tied behind its back because there are so many things that our allies, our partners, could be doing that they uh, are not today. And our underinvestment in the tools of winning friends, um, in particular around fighting misinformation and propaganda makes the job of our diplomats pretty difficult, which is another reason why we should be plussing up those resources so that we can win more uh, of these fights. And I think the administration has done a great job of rallying our closest friends, but I do think we have to shed light on the fact that that sort of next set of friends and the next concentric circle um, is kind of playing China off against Russia, telling us they'll work with us on China policy, but they're not with us on Russia policy. We have to elevate this dialogue on Russian sanctions evasions with some of our uh, important allies not in Europe. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to our guests for being here. Ambassador Sullivan, I thought it was interesting you said that Vladimir Putin believes he's at war with the United States, and certainly that is the way he is behaving when you think about what he's done with regard to our nuclear treaties. You know, for example, the 1987 INF Treaty eliminated a range of nuclear weapons, and because he was fielding so many illegal weapons, it forced us to withdraw from that treaty, forced the U.S. to withdraw from that treaty in, 19, in 2019. And you think about open skies that allowed us and Russia to overfly our countries and, with reconnaissance planes and 32 other countries. Uh, his noncompliance there forced us to withdraw from that in 2020. Now you've got the new START Treaty, and this is one where the Biden administration re-upped it for five years, just as it was set to expire in 2021. But Russia has said they are not participating anymore with regard to that. And this makes sense. If Putin again believes he's at war with us, why would he maintain any of these uh, agreements? The Biden administration has made the decision to unconditionally extend the new START Treaty, given uh, 
should we continue to be a part of this? What's your thought with regard to what do we do with the New START Treaty? Well, uh, thank you, Senator. I, I was actually in Moscow and was the person who had to uh, negotiate with the Russians on what should have been a, uh, a fairly easy extension. Once President Biden had decided at the start of his term in January of 2021 to extend by five years the treaty, which is what the Russians wanted, it was actually wound up being much more complicated than that and required some pretty intensive diplomacy with the Russians to actually get it done because nothing's easy with the Russians. So we extend the treaty. It's now been extended. It can't be extended beyond that. What the Russians have done, what Putin has done is, uh, to, the, to the extent that uh, the Russian government already before his speech earlier this year where he announced the suspension of, of uh, Russia's compliance and part or participation in the treaty, um, Putin announced it. Um, the, the administration, as I understand it, in fact, I think the administration just released yesterday the, uh, the, uh, the numbers for our strategic nuclear weapons as we do under, should do under the New START Treaty, but the Russians won't. Um, I think that's important. I think maintaining our transparency, our continuing commitment to maintaining control over nuclear weapons when he is playing games, and I say games because I don't think he wants a nuclear war with the United States, but he does want to use nuclear blackmail and use one of the few things he has left, which is his nuclear weapons, to try to uh, leverage that. So Secretary Blinken has said we're going to maintain the restrictions of the New START Treaty. Uh, what I hear you saying is that you, would, you think we should continue to live to those restrictions of the New START Treaty? And the Russians have said they will as well. What they have done, as I understand it, is there are inspections that are required under the treaty. The Russians won't allow us to inspect their, uh, their facilities, and we're not going to let the Russians in if they won't let us in. They've suspended inspections. They've suspended meetings of what's called a bilateral consultative commission, U.S. experts, Russian experts, to discuss issues under the treaty. But after Putin made that speech, the foreign ministry clarified and said they would continue to adhere to the, the numerical limitations under the treaty. But given he cheated on the INF treaty right. and everything else, how can we possibly trust right. anything that they would say that they're going to live up to the, the, the restrictions? In the so, so that was my point in my opening statement. Trust but verify, there's no trust. What we need are, and we do have, and, and Dr. Kendall Taylor will know more about this than I, technical means to try to verify Russian compliance. What we're missing are the inspections that we're entitled to under the treaty. That's what Putin's denying us. So I agree with you. It's a risk. We're not letting the Russians in. All that the United States is doing now is, and now is, is stating what we're complying with the numerical limits under the treaty. Those are the numbers that the administration released yesterday. It was a one-page document. We are not, because the Russians aren't, having Russians in to expect, inspect our facilities. So what should be our strategy when it comes to our nuclear strategic force? Well, first, we need to uh, upgrade to make sure that we are not uh, you know, we are not heading down a path, which I believe we were uh, some years ago, to in, in, in the hopes that there were going to be fewer and fewer nuclear weapons. 
So, uh, so the efforts right now that the military is taking to upgrade is really important. I think that's my opinion. I participated in the last administration as deputy secretary in the nuclear posture review. I think that's important now more than ever to maintain U.S. deterrence with an aggressive Russia and more so a rising China, including in its nuclear weapons program. Great. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Shaheen has kindly allowed me to swap places with her in the order, and then she'll take the helm until Senator Menendez returns. Um, I want to thank you for the testimony. It's been very helpful. And Dr. Kendall Taylor, I just want to underline a point you made. I think that the, the 300,000 mostly young uh, Russians who have departed the country, uh, some to avoid war, but some out of protest over the war, is a, a valuable resource for us, both in terms of understanding more deeply what, what the internal dynamic is, but also potentially to help organize pressure because they want to continue to see improvements in their home country. So I, I really appreciate that suggestion. Um, how big a deal is it that Finland is in NATO and Sweden, it's just a matter of time that they're going to be in NATO, both in terms of the military capacity of NATO, but also just sort of in the psychology of this, these two nations where polling for NATO accession would have been under 30% for decades, even up to three or four years ago, are now realizing they want to be part of NATO. How, how big a deal is that? Um, so what we've seen so far is obviously Putin has very much tried to play down uh, Finland's entry and Sweden's eventual entry in large part because the Russian military is so focused and overwhelmed with what's happening in Ukraine. And in fact, what we've seen is many of Russian forces that are stationed uh, in the west of the country have been redeployed to the east. So um, he has very much had to uh, play it down. But I think that we um, should expect that over time that there will be more of a military response to Finland and Sweden's entry into NATO. I think most immediately we're looking at um, hybrid tactics that Russia will try, right? Incursions into airspace, GPS jamming, all of those types of things just to express its displeasure. But over time, I think um, Russia will see a threat. I mean, when you think about now the kind of uh, security architecture of the region has been fundamentally altered. The, Bal the Baltic Sea is now basically ringed by NATO members with the exception of Kaliningrad. The other key change for Russia, as I talked about, is as its conventional forces are being degraded, Russia is going to place more importance and rely more heavily on its nuclear weapons. The Kola Peninsula in the Arctic is critical from that perspective. And so there are these changes in the security architecture that Russia will see, not just around the Black Sea, um, but more frequent and more sophisticated uh, NATO exercises in the area. Uh, closer integration of uh, intelligence, the very um, capable intelligence collection assets that Finland and Sweden have. So Russia will be looking at an altered threat picture, and we should expect that over time they will take increasingly more aggressive steps up in, into that Arctic region. And so the United States, and particularly NATO, are going to need to be prepared. So in the near term, Russia's military is degraded. Mm -hmm. We should expect more of the hybrid threats, but I do think over the long term um, that is a significant change that Russia will react and respond to. They're also likely to view the Arctic as a, a region where they can remind the world that they are a great power, so more kind of provocative actions that they could take in the region. 
And the last thing I would highlight too is the Russia-China dynamic in the Arctic. So as Russia is becoming increasingly dependent on China, they are gonna have to toe the line on Chinese interests. We know China wants to play a larger role in the Arctic. So what might China or what might Russia be willing to concede to China in the Arctic? That's a question we need to be watching. Already, Russia and China have signed a, a cooperation agreement of their Coast Guards. That's the first. It's really an interesting data point because historically Russia has wanted to keep China out of the Arctic because it feels it's its own sphere. Let, let, let me segue on that to yes, Ambassador please. Sullivan on the Russia-China relationship. You know, I've been asking about this for years, the increasing closeness of the countries and multiple administrations of both parties have tended to say you don't need to worry about the history of enmity between these countries suggests that there won't be but too much cooperation between them. I, I, I never really believe that to be the case. It seems like they're growing closer and closer. There's a dominant partner and a lesser partner, but they both seem pretty designed to work closely together to battle the West or however they want to put it. Is that your sense, Ambassador Sullivan? Oh, absolutely, and I can quote President Xi. And President Xi, when he's leaving Moscow after his meeting with, uh, with President Putin, as he's walking out the door, he, he looks at Putin and says, the, the changes that we're making in the world, they're unlike any that have seen, you know, the world has seen in 100 years, we're changing the system, you and I. And Putin looked at him and said, I agree. Absolutely. This is, uh, this, is a, this is a very troubling partnership. And to follow up on Dr. Kendall Taylor's point, uh, the, uh, China has always tried to characterize itself as a near-Arctic power, uh, and the Russians have resisted that, quite rightly. Uh, but I think it's going to be more difficult for them to resist that. I note, for example, that Russia yesterday threatened to withdraw it's, 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 uh, it was, for the last two years, chair of the Arctic Council, withdraw from the Arctic Council. And as I said, I, I think the Russians really didn't understand what I was saying when I said it. Um, if China's a near Arctic power, then that gives me some hope to pitch for the Red Sox. I can just describe myself as a near starting pitcher for the Red Sox. Why not? <laughs> facts are facts, right? So, uh, but, but the China partnership is vital for Putin, important and something that Xi will leverage, but vital for Putin. Can I make one very quick point, Senator, which is, I think the, so it's important for, for Putin, but it also amplifies the China challenge. And this is what we'll have to watch is that, again, as they are increasingly dependent, especially in the military domain, Russia will be sending increasingly sophisticated military systems, submarine quieting, and other things that basically make the Chinese a more capable military. They are getting data from Ukraine. They don't have combat experience. They're training, they're exercising, they're accessing data to train their AI. So Russia amplifies the China challenge and makes it more formidable adversary in the Indo-Pacific. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Kane, for presiding. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ambassador, as a Red Sox fan, I can tell you I certainly hope you do not get a pitching slot for the Red Sox. Um, I actually thought they might do a little better. If <laughs> <laughs> careful, careful, Gene. Two points for me. I don't want to oversimplify the, um, uh, our successful strategy relative to the former Soviet Union, uh, but we outcompeted them militarily, economically, and they finally uh, cried uncle, whether that was from internal pressure or uh, just a collapse of their competitiveness. Um, I, I, I really can't say, but... 
most successful strategies focus on a couple of things that, that are the most effective. And I, I don't know what those items might be. I'm just going to ask each of you to help me think about what should we really focus on? There's so many things we need to do as we confront a, a, uh, a Russia that we can't trust, a Russia that is assertive, aggressive, and, uh, and brutal. Uh, but are there some things that we're really not getting right yet, that we're not focused on sufficiently, uh, that really ought to become the, the focus of our, of our strategy? Um, I hear a number of us thinking about uh, we need to restrict their economy. It's a challenge when they, they have oil and gas and coal and, and, and Ukraine, excuse me, and uranium in, uh, in such abundance. I mean, they're always going to have enough money, and the Russian people put up with, with awful things, in part the alternative is going to a gulag. So um, where, where's the pressure point? Where are the places that we really ought to be applying uh, more effort if we're going to try and, and uh, uh, change the course of, uh, of Russian trajectory? Ambassador, why don't I begin with you and then uh, turn to uh, Dr. Kendall Taylor. Well, um, I think Dr. Kendall Taylor made the point in her opening statement, the key is Ukraine. So it's interesting, Senator, you mentioned the word competition. Putin doesn't like competition. Um, he lost the competition in Ukraine. The Russians lost the competition in Eastern Europe. The Eastern Europeans, when I hear the Russians talk about, well, your NATO is just moving west, what they don't acknowledge is their own behavior, the Russian behavior, has pushed those Eastern European countries to the west. Excuse me, NATO moving east. The Eastern European countries, they lost that competition. So what has he resorted to? War. The oldest, one of the oldest forms of competition. You know, we can compete on ideas, economy, etc. He's chosen the venue now to wage a war in Ukraine for his Ruski Mir, his Russian Empire. He can't win that. We can talk about weapon systems and how much financial support the United States, as opposed to our allies, can provide. If we don't defeat his imperial mission in Ukraine, then the, the, world, the system that the United States and our, our allies and partners in the whole world, including China, have benefited from over the 75-plus uh, years since the end of the Second World War, that will drive a final stake through it. The UN Security Council is already, unlike in 1990, when there was uh, aggression by Iraq invading Kuwait, Security Council authorizes what became Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, but that was a UN Security Council authorized, voted by the Soviet Union uh, to expel militarily Iraq from Kuwait. That's not going to happen again. So I think Putin has chosen the place where we're going to compete, and he's chosen war because he's lost every other form of competition. Thank you. So I'll just foot stomp the Ukraine piece, and it's so important for everything the ambassador said, but I mean, it is critical that Russia is defeated, that Ukraine wins, because it will help Russians shed their imperial ambitions, and it teaches future Russian leaders important lessons about the limits of military power. I mean, I think it, it's critically important, and we shouldn't overstate it. I think on that front, what we're lacking, I mean, obviously there's more we can do in terms of attackums and longer range weapons, but one thing I am also concerned about is I don't think the Biden administration or 
uh, Washington in general has a story about what happens to our support after the counteroffensive. And I think that it, that shapes Putin's calculus. It, it's what convinces him that time is on his side and that the United States will tire. And so our, if there are things that the US Congress could do to demonstrate that we will have credible deliveries of weapons out into the future, I think that shapes Putin's calculus about our staying power. So if we could have something like that, I think it would be critically important. Um, and having you all, the president and the administration, make a case to the American people about why this matters. I, I am concerned that we see some public support for Ukraine waning, and that is what Putin is counting on. But your, your question was bigger than that, and I don't think that there's any like magic point of leverage that we have. This really is a long-term confrontation. It is almost like the kind of containment 2.0 on an updated version. And so it is about constricting and constraining through sanctions, through export controls, by tightening those regimes. It's about strengthening deterrence in Europe. We have to be able to credibly commit to enhance and maintain deterrence in Europe. The Europeans, unfortunately, can't. This war has shown that Europe is not ready to defend themselves and that the United States must remain committed for the foreseeable future, although we can encourage them to build the European pillar within NATO. We have to grow the coalition of countries countering Russia. We have to mitigate the Russia-China partnership, and we have to continue to work to weaken autocracy's grip. There will be a post-Putin Russia. I'm not optimistic necessarily about what it looks like, but there could be an opening that didn't exist before. So the civil system society pieces, uh, supporting um, investigative journalism, all of those pieces, anti-corruption. I mean, that's what the lifeblood of Putin's regime. The more the US Congress can do on our real estate markets, on all of those types of things, that where we have seen so much progress in the aftermath, it's just staying the course and doing it for the long term because it is a long-term confrontation. Thank you. Doctor, uh, uh, I was going to say Dr. Shaheen, but uh, Senator Shaheen. That works. Um, <laughs> thank you both for being here. Um, Ambassador Sullivan, I want to start with you because I want to go back to the Arctic. And you mentioned the Arctic Council. How important is it for us to get our ambassador to the Arctic Council confirmed? Uh, the Arctic Council is important. I went to the, uh, the Arctic Council countries the ambassadors of those countries in Moscow, we used to meet regularly. So those are the bilateral ambassadors to Russia. We would, we would meet with Ambassador Kortunov, who was the Russian ambassador. The Arctic Council is very important, and it's why the Russians are squealing the way they are now, because every other member of the Arctic Council is united against them and has excluded them. So extremely important. Well, thank you. I, I would just say, Mr. Chairman and um, Senator Risch, that I hope this committee will move as quickly as we can on uh, confirming that Arctic ambassador, or at least having a hearing so it can move forward. Um, I want to go follow up a little bit on the what will Congress do after the war, and also in terms of your statements, Dr. Kendall Taylor, about continuing to make the case about why this war is important. I, I couldn't agree more with both of you on that. And um, it's something that I try and do when I'm in New Hampshire, whenever I have an opportunity. One of the things I find particularly frustrating is the continued questions that I get, and I'm sure every member of this committee gets, from reporters who keep saying, well, isn't um, support for the war um, deteriorating in Congress because we have extremists at either end who are talking about why we should stop funding this war. So 
I have two questions for you, both really. One is, um, what does that mean when we see those extremist voices and um, how does that affect the public as a whole? And when reporters magnify those voices, what does that do? And secondly, to what extent are we seeing any Russian disinformation or Chinese or other adversaries disinformation to try and promote those divisions within our society to try and undermine the war effort. And I will open to whoever wants to go first. I, I think your um, point on the media is also critically important because they do tend to amplify and make quite a lot out of statements. And no one remembers then when a statement gets walked back. They just remember the statement. So I do think that the media has done a lot to amplify the divisions and to highlight um, very minority-held views about um, you know, calling into question whether or not we should sustain support for Ukraine. Um, I do, I mean, obviously, I mean, we all know that the American public does take cues from the, from the U.S. Congress and from the political elite. And so when they hear those types of statements, I absolutely think it leads them to call into question. So that's why I think it's critically important for members of Congress and for the president himself to continue to make the case. I think it is unfortunate that the president has, obviously he's traveled to Ukraine and that's wonderful, and he's given important speeches in Warsaw and other places, but he hasn't addressed the American people. It wasn't part of the State of the Union and other things. And so I think when we hear, it's the critical voices that call into question that are being amplified and we don't hear enough about the case for the sustained support and there is an imbalance there. Um, on your question about disinformation, I am not aware and I haven't followed that closely enough to answer that question, so I'm not certain. But it, it, it obviously seems like a ripe uh, issue for, for, for targets um, of Russian and Chinese disinformation. Ambassador Sullivan, do you have any thoughts just, about Just one quick quick thought. Uh, I mean, there's, uh, I think it was Senator Murphy who earlier in the hearing said, uh, there's a burden that Ukraine needs to bear in waging this war. It can't do it on its own, financially or militarily. The Russians, likewise, need help. What I think needs to be acknowledged is the vital importance of Ukraine prevailing on its terms. Now, that support, it shouldn't all come from the United States. We can discuss among us, among Americans, and with our allies and partners, burden sharing. Whether a particular weapon system is really something that would be used in the context of this conflict, what we can't debate is the nature of the adversary and why the fight is being waged in the first place. It has to be waged, it has to be supported, and the world needs to come together. Only part of the world has now. It can't just be the United States. Well, thank you. I, I have one final question, and that has to do with Belarus. And I know that um, this hearing is about the U.S.-Russian relationship, but one of the one of the few countries that has stood by Russia during this invasion has been Belarus. Can you speak to um, the relationship between Lukashenko and Putin and whether he's going to be able to continue to hold the line when he says no military involvement? Is that what's really going on or is there something else happening? Well, I was there, I was in Moscow in August of 2020 when Lukashenko really lost the presidential election, then crushed the demonstrators after the election on, on August 
9th arrested almost 40,000 people, a lot of violence. Putin supported that. Before then, my recollection is that Secretary Pompeo traveled to Minsk earlier in 2020 and met with Lukashenko. But Lukashenko became really dependent on Putin. He might not have survived in August of 2020 without that support. They already have a union state, Belarus and Russia, the, the, the union state. He's become, Lukashenko, much more dependent on Putin. I think he is the world leader who has had more meetings with Putin. I think he's had 14 since the special military operation began, all in Moscow. Putin doesn't go to Minsk. Lukashenko is dependent on him, and Putin has used Belarus as a platform to launch the special military operation, particularly the drive south to Kiev. So Lukashenko had ideas about a slightly more independent Minsk, but his, uh, the re-election fiasco for him in August of 2020 has driven him closer into the arms of his union state partner, Vladimir Putin, and uh, he's resisted using Belarusian military in part because I'm not sure there are milita military experts much, I'm not a military expert, but I think the Belarusian security services are more capable than the Belarusian military. I'm not sure they add that much to what the Russians have. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Young. Ambassador Sullivan, good to see you again. Dr. Taylor, uh, good to see you. And, and thank you both for your years of uh, service to our country and your thoughtfulness. Um, <clears throat> let me uh, begin with uh, the issue of burden sharing, because you just mentioned it, uh, Ambassador. I think we would all agree that um, there, there's now more enthusiasm than there was just a couple of years ago uh, among our European partners for the NATO uh, uh, alliance and, and uh, investment in that alliance uh, in various ways. I believe it's crucial that the U.S. continue to use levers at its disposal to ensure that Europeans are as invested in their own security uh, as the U.S. is in, in maintaining stability in Europe. So, Ambassador Sullivan, what mechanisms are available to us to ensure that all European members of NATO quickly meet and sustain defense spending at no less than 2% and 20% and thresholds agreed to in Wales nearly 10 years ago? Well, thank you, Senator. Good, good to see you thank again. You. Um, well, that's been a vital question for years, going back to when I was deputy secretary and uh, then President Trump was railing about the fact that European allies, big countries, uh, weren't meeting the Wales commitment that had been made based on what had happened in Ukraine, recall. Uh, so since then, uh, I think the shift since February 24th of 2022 uh, I think we've seen uh, countries like Germany uh, have a pretty dramatic shift. It's going to take a while for their systems to turn. Imagine our own system, right? Increasing defense spend. I mean, these are important, difficult questions. So we've got to keep the pressure on, make the case for why it's important, and the threat that they face from the East. So that, that all makes sense with me. And this is in part uh, about sustaining domestic su support for uh, you know, resourcing the Ukrainians, right? And, and so that's really what is most on my mind. Is, is there a way in your mind that we can um, uh, do a better job of elevating those who are meeting their commitments and, and uh, ensuring that people understand uh, that uh, 
they are shining examples of, of what other countries should aspire to? Well, the carrot uh, as opposed to the stick. Yeah, the, the, the carrot, we can't diminish, of course, uh, the, the guarantees of the, uh, of the treaty. So we can't say, well, we might be slower coming to your rescue if you get invaded by, sure. by Russia. Right. But so without undermining that, I think uh, for those countries that need to be persuaded of the need to meet the Wales commitment, given what's happened in the 15 months since uh, February 2022, that's a, that's a fair approach. Could I add one quick point? Oh, please, I, uh, I agree about the 2% the, the is a critically important benchmark, and I do hope at the Vilnius summit that there will be a shift as the 2% is the floor and not the ceiling. But just as important as the how much is the how allies are spending, and I think that's another area where the United States can continue to put pressure on allies and partners to make sure that the spending <clears throat> is done um, appropriately and most effectively. And certainly as we're thinking of like a potential two-front war as uh, conflict uh, tensions heat up with China, um, I think many of us are concerned about what that would mean. You know, what would the United States need to take out of Europe if we did have a confrontation with yeah. China? Yeah. And so ensuring that our European allies and partners understand what it is that we would take out, the logistics, the air-to-air -air refueling, the ISR, those capabilities, that's where allies really need to be investing so that, so that we're prepared for that kind of scenario. So it's, it's the how much, but it's also the how. Okay, I, I may follow up on that thoughtful point uh, to try and get a better sense of, of what NATO is actually doing, what contingencies, uh, which are, might be publicly available, uh, can, can you or others speak to uh, so that I have a measure of confidence that that, that conversation is, is happening. Um, if I could, with, with some remaining time here, just briefly touch on New START. Senator Van Hollen and I have, have been pretty outspoken about the value of arms control between the U.S. and, and Russia over the years, uh, both for its own sake, but also for the message it sends to other nuclear powers. In February, as we know, we saw Vladimir Putin announce a suspension of Russia's participation in New START, uh, the last arms control treaty between the U.S. and Russia. Despite Russia's noncompliance, administration has continued uh, to indicate that it will continue to uphold its end of the treaty. And so, uh, Ambassador Sullivan, if you could just briefly indicate how you assess the effects of Russia's suspension of the treaty, especially in the risk of, of misunderstanding leading to a, a nuclear exchange. Well, thank you, Senator. My, my understanding is that uh, what Putin announced, the Russian government had actually already previously uh, announced, the foreign ministry had said, no more meetings of the Bilateral Consultative Commission, no inspections. Uh, Putin announces the suspension of Russia under the New START Treaty. I understand, though, that the foreign ministry clarified shortly thereafter and said that Russia would continue to comply with the numerical limits in the treaty. It's just that they've eliminated, by eliminating the inspections, they've eliminated one of the means for us to verify that they're complying with the treaty. So it's, uh, it's problematic. We are not allowing the Russians to do inspections here if they're not allowing us to do them there. We have also said we will comply with the numerical limits under, under the treaty. Is that the best we can do uh, at this point, or do you have additional thoughts, I, either of you, about uh, how we should evaluate our own nuclear posture and, and missile defense posture in Europe? The only point I would add is a, a point that I made earlier, which is 
the more degraded that Russia's conventional forces become, the more they will rely on their nuclear weapons, including their non-strategic nuclear weapons. The more vulnerable they feel, the more quickly they will go to the nuclear. And so it really shortens the pathway to nuclear war. So I do think that we are entering kind of in a new, uh, where the threat of nuclear use is only rising. And so not only do we need to continue to think about what role arms control can play in this, but I do think we have to think very hard about our deterrent posture. So in, at NATO, do we need to bring back more of our nuclear exercises? How do we convince the Russians that we will fight through a nuclear war, for example? So I think that, so in addition to the arms control piece, which I do continue to believe is critically important, I do think that we have to be aware that we are headed towards a future without arms control, and we, along with allies and partners, are going to have to think about how, how we get better at deterrence. Thank you both. Your presence here is, is so valuable. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank all of you for your, uh, your testimony and your, your service. Um, and uh, thanks, Senator Young, for his work on uh, the efforts on nuclear arms control. Um, let me ask you both about the role of China here, because China has clearly been a malign actor. You have President Xi saying uh, our, that their friendship with China knows, quote, no boundaries, all in, uh, visiting Moscow, cozying up uh, to Putin. And we've been very clear that if we see any additional signs or signs that China is providing lethal aid to Ukraine, uh, that we will respond strongly, primarily in the form of sanctions. And obviously, that will only be successful with our with our allies and partners around the world. But I also uh, noticed that you know, Putin uh, has said that he is considering deploying uh, tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus. There have been some reports that uh, President Xi and China have had a restraining influence on Putin when it comes to the possible use or threatening the use of nuclear weapons. And Putin, uh, excuse me, uh, and, and one of and, and China's diplomats, as we speak, are visiting various European capitals uh, to uh, sort of, you know, test different proposals that they want to advance uh, in terms of a settlement. Uh, we've been very clear uh, that any settlement has to be proposed by Ukrainians and President Zelensky. But my question to you is, we know all the bad things that China has done here. Is there any positive role, in your view, that they could play um, if they so chose, and what would that be? If I could start with you, uh, Ambassador Sullivan. So I think the visit by the special representative to Europe is a key indication of how sensitive they are to the EU market. So, you know, we've I've thought for a long time, and others have as well, that. Uh, Obviously, Xi didn't, tr didn't dissuade or try to dissuade Putin from launching the special military operation when they, uh, when they met before the Olympics in, in February of 2020. And I think from, from China's perspective, they get some benefit from the United States focused on a conflict in Eastern Europe and not focused on uh, as, mu as much as we could be on uh, East Asia. But the risk for Xi is in the EU, and the, their that market is extremely important for him. I believe we've seen a shift in China under Xi from 
I went with uh, then Treasury Secretary Paulson on his last trip to China in December of 2008. And all that our Chinese interlocutors wanted to talk about was the economy and economic growth. Now, and back then, this was the strategic economic dialogue. Uh, they were focused on growing their economy, uh, strengthening their economy. What we've seen with President Xi is a shift where geopolitics and security are now taking the lead. Uh, but so the geopolitical rationale for supporting his dear friend, uh, the president of Russia, uh, is but what he, that's that's what he's been pursuing. But what is nagging at him now is that underlying need for economic growth. And if they drive the Europeans farther away from China, because they're supporting Putin in a war in Europe, that's not going to be popular with the Europeans, and that's not going to help them in that really key market for them. Dr. Taylor. I agree entirely. I think in many, or almost certainly, the Europeans have more leverage than the United States does in pressuring China to play a constructive role in the conflict. Um, but I think the problem is, is as we talked about before, that she and Putin have an incredibly deep relationship that they see themselves united in pushing back on the United States and U.S. influence all across the globe. And I, in that sense, I don't think that she will play um, a, a productive or uh, role in this conflict. I mean, I think Xi's interest is, A, ensuring that Putin doesn't lose. And in a scenario where Ukraine makes a very significant, uh, makes significant progress in its counteroffensive is the scenario that I could imagine Xi crossing America's red line and beginning to provide more lethal assistance to, to prevent his best and closest ally, really, um, from falling uh, in Ukraine. So uh, I don't see evidence currently in, for example, in China's peace plan, I think in many ways is almost laughable, calling for a ceasefire without any withdrawal of Russian forces, which we all understand that Putin would just use as to re, you know, rest, retry, refit, retry. Um, and so until we see a very significant change in the rhetoric coming out of Beijing or in the proposals that they put forward, I don't see them playing a constructive role in the peace process. So it's primarily window dressing um, and theater uh, for European uh, They want to have their cake and eat it, it too. That, yeah. That's my assessment uh, as well. So um, I appreciate you both being here. A lot more questions, but I see my time is out. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, one last question for both of you. Um, as we know, Russia is increasingly using wrongful detention of U.S. citizens as a foreign policy tool. As we speak, American citizens Paul Whelan, Evan Gushevich, remain wrongfully detained. I remain concerned about the welfare of Jimmy Wilgus, whose parents are New Jersey constituents. At the same time, Russia's most prominent opposition leaders, Alexei Navalny, Vladimir Karamusa, languish in Russian prisons on trumped-up charges. So for both of you, if you have any insights, first, what can we do, if anything, to limit Russia's use of wrongful detention in this way? And second, what different approach could we be taking to the continuing detentions of Navalny and Karamusa? Well, I, sp I spent a lot of time thinking about these issues, Mr. Chairman. I was uh, uh, there when Brittany Griner was, uh, was arrested, uh, visited Paul Whelan many times, Trevor Reed. Um, it is a policy of the Russian government, but it's the Russian government under Putin uses every 
every aspect of Russian society is put to what uh, the goals that President Putin has for Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church, the national airline, the court system, the judicial system. Their courts look beautiful. Their courtrooms, it's a beautiful building. Uh, it's a beautiful courtroom. It's a Potemkin court. It is used by the Russian uh, security services and the Kremlin to achieve their policy ends. There is no justice. There's no independent judiciary. So they are, in my opinion, and I think it's pretty widely shared, uh, they are arresting Americans, and when they catch uh, an American or when, and they are able to detain them, and that American has certain characteristics, whether it's an Olympic gold medalist or a Wall Street Journal reporter that they can get their hooks in, they are going to use that person just as they use every other aspect of Russian society to their advantage against us in their war against us. Um, so I think uh, the, the best I can come up with, uh, Senator, in response to your question, is to discourage Americans from traveling to Russia unless there's an extraordinary need, uh, particularly Americans who have served in the military, have or had a security clearance, uh, have some prominence. Uh, but I also think we have to engage in multilateral diplomacy because it shouldn't just be an American problem when a Wall Street Journal reporter, a 31-year-old man uh, who is doing his job as an international correspondent, is arrested on trumped-up espionage charges. That shouldn't just be a problem of the United States. Those are all excellent points. The only thing I would add is a little bit tangential, which is you know, the detention of the Wall Street Journal reporter is, I think it's an intentional and intended to have a chilling effect on having other American and Western journalists in the country. So it's another way that Vladimir Putin is ensuring that we can't shine a light on his domestic repression uh, and really have insight into the changes that are taking place in Russia. That's going to make it ever more difficult for the United States to be able to keep a pulse on these changes in Russian society and understand what is happening inside Russia. So the, it's, it's, not, it's not a preventative measure, but it's a mitigation tactic, which is to continue to fund uh, investigative journalists and the journalists who are doing their work outside of Russia. Many of them still have ways to contact their sources back inside Russia. So it is going to leave a big black box that makes us ever harder for us to understand the Russia that we face. Mm -hmm. And if we can't prevent it, we should at least try to mitigate the impact by continuing to fund those journalists outside and the other Russians who have left. I appreciate that. Uh, well, you said something, Ambassador Sullivan, that I've been contemplating, which is some type of a, a universal convention, uh, sort of like an Article 5 on wrongful detention. If you wrongfully detain a citizen of a country of the convention, then all countries spring into action and the consequences, because then the ante would be up, the cost would be up. Uh, for wrongfully detaining of citizens. I think of the Canadians who had a few citizens that were detained elsewhere. This is, this is going to be a continuing problem so long as the consequences are little and the rewards are big, uh, we'll, we'll continue to lose people. Well, with uh, the thanks of the committee, uh, this record for this hearing will remain open until the close of business on Wednesday, December, May 17th. Uh, we appreciate uh, your uh, insights, and this hearing is adjourned.